Welcome, everyone, to Family Office Connections. I'm Edward Marshall, Managing Director at Boston Private. Today, we have a special guest uh, who has a distinguished career in security, privacy, financial services, and global affairs. After leaving government, he partnered with uh, national security experts to form a global security and risk management advisory company, coupled with a specialized security-focused merchant banking practice. So joining us today is Chad Sweet, CEO of the Chertoff Group. Chad, uh, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Eddie. So we'll cover uh, several areas, including election security as we approach November 3rd, some relevant geopolitical issues affecting family family offices, including the great reopening debate and how industries are adjusting uh, to bring back confidence in a post-COVID-19 environment. And then we'll end our chat on a discussion of the findings of a recent family office risk and threat survey that we conducted in partnership with uh, Chad and his team. So uh, let me start with a little bit of a bio uh, and some background on Chad. Chad, is, the, as I mentioned, is the co-founder and CEO of the Chertoff Group. Chad also served in the Central Intelligence Agency and was the former chief of staff to the Department of Homeland Security. He's a co-chair of the Heritage Foundation's National Security Legal Working Group. He's a senior fellow at George Washington University's Homeland Security Policy Institute and serves on the current DHS Secretary's Homeland Security Advisory Council. Chad is also uh, also serves on a number of boards, including as chairman of the cyber company Trustway of Government Services. Um, given his, you know, certainly given the current uh, COVID nineteen crisis, I think it's important uh, for me to note that you know while at DHS, Chad worked along uh, with some of our country's top epidemiologists and medical experts, including uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, and he helped bring uh, build out some of our nation's early plans to respond to various pandemic scenarios. Two thousand five, we put those plans to test as Chad and his team helped manage our national pandemic response during the outbreak of the avian flu. And then start, you know, after that, starting the Chertoff Group, Chad and his colleagues provided pandemic response advice uh, to their clients during H1N1 in 2009, that being the closest pandemic to the current coronavirus outbreak. So let's get underway with some questions here. Uh, top of the uh, top of the tick here is election security. So Chad, uh, voting is very different uh, these days than any time, and you know certainly in our lifetimes, given the current con- conditions. Uh, you know the things that are come top of mind around election monitoring in the United States and concerns about ballots and integrity are are ones that you know we probably faced and looked at when we were you know working abroad. Uh, you know. What is it going to look like when we wake up on November November fourth? Well, I, you know, I I wish I could tell everyone I have a crystal ball, uh, but I don't. But I will say that there are a number of things that you can look at right now uh, that would indicate that there are a couple of more likely scenarios. And so the first likely scenario um, is the possibility if you if you look at the data today. And again, I'm not. Uh, Taking a political point of view, I'm, I'm taking a probability point of view. Um, you, you can see that virtually every um, metric except three are indicating a probable Biden win. Now, how that unfolds is important. Number one, um, the the data shows today that right now the vast majority of Absentee ballots that are coming in are on approximately a two to one uh, volume in favor of Democrats. Um, and it looks like that you could have a scenario where the initial night of the election, um, what that means is that you could have a, a substantial number, a number of Republican voters who actually show up and vote in person so that the early polling results indicates or looks as if it's a Republican victory. Um, But then um, that's what I would refer to in some have called the the red mirage, that you may end up having a a second blue wave of the absentee ballots which come in um, on a delayed basis. And we just saw the Supreme Court, as you may know, yesterday, Basically, it was a divided court on a four-to-four ruling, which meant that the lower court ruling stood in Pennsylvania. Um, The Pennsylvania court has uh, allowed for all absentee ballots to be counted, even if they arrive after the day of the election, provided they were postmarked on the day of the election. So um, it is entirely possible that those absentee ballots 
will swing the outcome in the other direction. What does that mean? It just means that there is um, been concerned uh, that uh, some of the dialogue out in the public realm obviously has called into question the integrity of the voting system and the possibility of voter fraud. And um, that, that scenario that I've just described of a, a red mirage followed by a blue wave, um, it, it ends up actually, even if it's 100% factually accurate, uh, it creates an environment for adversaries like Russia or China or even domestic parties that um, are attempting to sway the election in their favor. And it could be at a, a congressional level, a senatorial level, not, not only at the presidential level, um, but you could see you know, at efforts made to either disrupt um, or call into question the integrity and fairness of the election itself. And so that scenario I know has been discussed and it's something that is of, of concern. Um, if you look at the, the, we can talk a minute, minute Eddie, about how, that, how to deal with that. But I think from a family office perspective, for those that are on the phone, it does mean that both two points. One is um, when you think about your family office portfolio, uh, obviously the, that's a, a prescription for taking out some type of potential hedge or option to look at your overall concentration risks and if need be, straddle or hedge uh, your portfolio to uh, protect it from the likely volatility that's going to come in the fourth quarter of this year after the election. And it's not just around, the volatility is not going to be ex uh, exclusive to the election itself. It also involves several other major events that are going to follow that. Uh, but in addition to the, the uh, portfolio volatility is the, the actual security of the off family office itself. And so there is the potential for um, unrest uh, and social uh, unrest that you know, right now, at least from a prudence point of view, we hope we never get there. But I think um, ensuring that your family principles are uh, schooled and practiced and understand kind of what the drill will be in terms of protecting themselves and, and their loved ones. Now, there's the other possibility, of a, the other likely scenario here is that you could see a blue wave that is so decisive that it actually results in the early election results being clear. And that would be a scenario, again, where um, you're not going to see a contested election that'll be much more stable and it's possible that uh, you could end up not needing those plans that I just discussed. But I think, as we all agree, if you're, if you're a fiduciary or advisor to a family office, you certainly want to hope for the best, but you need to plan for the worst. So in that planning, um, you know, it, it, you know the, in the different scenarios that you're talking about, what are the family offices uh, that you work with, you know, kind of positioning with around that? Uh, whether it, 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 certainly um, expecting a little bit of volatility in, in all fronts of our lives over the next couple of months. Yeah, I think number one, um, we're seeing you know on the on outside of the family offices, there are going to be efforts of, among different national security and uh, other former officials on a nonpartisan basis will be out to try to calm and stabilize um, the 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 public. One group that Secretary Chertoff, my co-founder, and I um, have been a member of and helped create is a thing called Citizens for a Strong Democracy. And um, that CSD, or Citizens for a Strong Democracy, um, is uh, basically composed of a variety of leaders that will go out and who have real-world experience in stable elections and transitions between uh, presidential power and, and they can speak to that issue in an authoritative way. The group is composed, there are four major leaders of the group, two Republican former Secretaries of Homeland Security, Secretary Michael Chertoff and Secretary Tom Ridge on the Republican side, and then two Democratic former Secretaries, Secretary Napolitano and Secretary Jay Johnson. Um, CSD and other groups like Issue One or the National Task Force for Election Crises, they will all be putting out information about um, how to ensure stability during this period. So I think some family offices we know are 
uh, making sure that they're plugged into that information and, and just making sure that they, if you're an advisor to a family, that you're able to provide them during this upcoming period of potential term will, uh, helpful facts around how this process will work out, not just on the counting of the actual ballots, but then how will uh, the electoral college take place, and then how will the eventual, if, if there is a transition of government required as a result of the election, you know, mechanically, how will that happen? Um, those are elements of families wanting to kind of know uh, and how will that affect them. Then the second piece is their actual, uh, both virtual and physical security. The family offices that we work with, you know, are, as I mentioned before, at least going through some type of uh, post-election uh, post scenario uh, exercise where if they need to, uh, ensuring that they have a clear chain of com communication with every family member and, and whoever plays a key role in the office. Um, there's clarity about where they're going to be on the day of the election and their movements. If they're also a home or a second home, clarity on the security of that home, how it's how is it actually secured. Um, if they needed to, you know, and again, this is a scenario that we would hope won't unfold, but depending on where, if there are any areas that could have unrest, and what are the plans for uh, evacuation or a second location in which they can seek refuge. On the cyber side, as I mentioned before, there are going to be um, active cyber adversaries that are going to be stirring the pot on the actual vote, the election itself. Russia will be active, China will be active, Iran will be active. Um, but that also creates an environment where criminal actors may take advantage of that uh, that moment and could, you know, if if, it, if the family is in a situation where they need to disperse cash uh, to a family member that's taking refuge in a different location, um, be on, have to be on the lookout to make sure that there's multi-factor authentication for any wire transfers mm -hmm. that you you know don't fall victim to a cyber phishing attack or a business email compromise. So those are a flavor for some of, of the both the outside the family office actions in terms of staying abreast of the developments in the election, as well as how to keep the family safe, both physically and virtually. Sure. Chad, let, let's come back to what you mentioned around Russia. Um, I think that that tucks in nicely to our, our conversation on geopolitical events. And certainly, you know, we had discussions around U.S. election interference with Russia in 2016. You know, you have the current DNI director making comments about Russian interference and in laptops members of Congress making contradictory, uh, sometimes contradictory statements and raising their own concerns about election interference. Where, where are you seeing that play out uh, on the Russia side these days? Well, we definitely have seen, as you just mentioned, um, it, it's unclear exactly right now what the final forensic analysis will show. But this recent incident with respect to Hunter Biden and his laptop uh, and email compromise is um, it, it, it has very similar signatures of a classic uh, KGB or you know, GRU type uh, information operation, uh, disinformation op. So it's possible that they have taken advantage of that situation and fed uh, you know, false or erroneous information, or they may have actually hacked authentic emails and purposely leaked them in order to create, again, uh, controversy. Uh, so that's an example that's going on right now as we speak. But as you mentioned, if you just step back and we can all look at what's going on with Facebook, with Twitter, you know, one of the, one of the themes I want to leave people um, on this call with as a note of encouragement, and it's a it's a sort of a, it's a sober and balanced note of encouragement, which is um, number one that. 26. This is not 2016. That we're we're in a better position than we were in 2016 to fight and counter uh, disinformation operations from our adversaries, uh, both foreign and then uh, those who try to disrupt domestically. Um, and then secondly, it's you know while it's going to get worse before it gets better, it is going to get eventually better, both uh, on the COVID front as well as the eventual resolution of the election itself. So on the Facebook side or Twitter side, just for example, in closing, those two, you know, 
social media platforms were exploited by our adversaries at a large scale. Uh, they they now are aware of how they were exploited, and they are attempting both of them in, in different ways to uh, try to counter that with active monitoring of various algorithms. Um, and they're doing it. They're somewhat doing it, to be honest, in, in a not completely consistent way. And it's creating a little, you know, bit of uh, noise and controversy that they need to get under uh, better coordination. Um, and it may call into question again their status under Section 230. But uh, the main message in terms of this is not 2016 is that from a disinformation point of view, our adversaries, you know, will have a much more difficult playing field to seed uh, chaos and dissent than they did in 2016. So let's talk about Section 230. Uh, you know, you had the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee speaking last week, looking like they were trying to bring in the, the executives from Twitter and Facebook and others to, to talk about this, among other issues. Where do you see Section 230 playing out if we don't have a transfer of power or if we do have uh, one uh, on this issue. Yeah, I think one of the messages I'd have for those on the phone when we're thinking about um, portfolios, and this is going to be a contrarian thing that you won't hear from any other people, but I, I would suggest to you that on a number of policy areas, um, despite the fact that both campaigns are portraying this election as a stark choice, and there's no question there are some policy differences, I think in, in a number of areas, though, you'll be surprised that there's more continuity than change. And what do I mean by that? Like on the issue around the social media platforms in Section 230, um, whether there's a change of administration or not, I think there will be, uh, on both sides of the aisle, a strong uh, initiative to take a hard look at how social media is using its current protections under Section 230 and what safeguards need to be put in place to both protect ourselves from you know, foreign adversaries who are intentionally sowing disinformation, um, but at the same time balancing free speech. And so um, I, do, I do think, Eddie, that even prior to the, to the January 20th inauguration of what, whichever, either a second Trump term or a first Biden term, you will see the social media executives being called up to Congress. Um, as I mentioned a moment ago, they have they have come to to address this threat, but they didn't come in a coordinated way. Each one of them has tried to do it uh, kind of on a go it alone basis, and as a result of that, uh, on each of their platforms, they've reversed themselves on some of the policies they took early on. And then even among themselves, they're doing contradictory or different things. And so I think everyone is well-intended, but the result has been um, certainly a confusing policy landscape and one in which uh, both sides of the aisle are going to have interests in trying to get more consistency. I think on the Republican side, you know, they've painted it as uh, more of an adversarial approach. Um, and with respect to the Democratic side, they're approaching it more from the standpoint of preventing disinformation. But in both cases, uh, that's going to require a mature discussion over what ground rules need to be put in place on a more consistent basis. So um, watch for uh, that. And as a result, 20, Section 230 is very likely in a, to come under significant pressure and instead be replaced with an alternative regulatory framework. Um, It'll lean largely on the existing framework that exists for both broadcasters and print media. Um, but that's just the, the, at the tip of it. I think there's going to be a lot of other aspects of how to manage through the portfolios. In uh, you know, obviously, the social media landscape has been, uh, right now at least, relatively resistant. If you look at uh, the overall stock market, the technology sector, uh, which is composed of many of the social media giants, has done quite well, and I think that um, each of these teams, so you know, Facebook, I know their regulatory team, Twitter, et cetera, they have some very capable people that will help them navigate this in a way that uh, will allow them to continue to operate profitably, but will still, uh, it will have to be, you know, there'll have to be some compromises struck 
in order to allow for you know, social interest around fairness and free speech to be resolved. So, Chad, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about another geopolitical issue. Um, and that's also a biomedical one, coronavirus. You know, when you and I started talking about this, you know, we were thinking six weeks. Okay, then that turned into six months, and now we're looking at 16 months. Is, is that the right time frame uh, for what you're talking about with family offices? I think that it's definitely going to be a, a longer uh, trajectory. And I think in the one you described of being closer to, you know, some people were hoping it was going to be over by the, you know, summer, the heat of the summer. Um, and I think that, you know, clearly wasn't the case. We're clearly going into now what uh, looks like a twindemic, both with flu, seasonal flu and regular COVID, um, and effectively a third wave. Um, we know that we've had, you know, peak infections of almost 70,000 cases per day over the last several days, and that's that's a early indicator for um, certainly a rise in hospitalizations and a likely increase in uh, in deaths. And if you step back and look at it, I think that that's sort of a depressing uh, figure. But if you if you do look at it, as I said a moment ago, one of the I think hopefully sober notes of encouragement is that unfortunately it is going to get worse before it gets better, but it will get better. And uh, in terms of the time frame and what we're discussing with our clients, you know, based on the work that we did um, back, you know, when we stood up DHS, we we were responsible not only for defending the country against terrorism, but we were responsible you know, for DHS is an all hazards agency, both dealing with man-made as well as uh, other types of non-man-made uh, catastrophic scenarios. And so they're responsible for putting in place and coordinating a federal response to catastrophic scenarios, which means scenarios that overwhelm the ability of any single city or any single state to address. So it requires a, a greater national effort. And certainly pandemics were part of the biodefense arena. And we put in place with Dr. Fauci uh, the original pandemic uh, plan after President Bush had read the book, The Great Influenza, and instructed us to do so. And that plan was used at the end of the Bush administration when we had an outbreak of H5N1. And uh, people don't really talk about that very much anymore because it was it was contained and, and ultimately ended. Um, that same playbook was largely used for the H1N1 outbreak at the beginning of the, of the Obama administration. Um, and if you step back and look at how those ended and how this one uh, is unfolding, we're still going to have to get to uh, overall herd immunity. And, th and there's two ways to get there. One is either through infection or the other is through a vaccine and or combination. And so that means right now, if you take I think about this, Eddie, if we've got a population today of 330 million approximately, and we need to get to, for herd immunity, roughly 60 to 80 percent of the population needs to have some form of sustainable immunity. So in, in responding to your question, when you think about the, how do we get to that endpoint, that's where we'll start to slowly begin to see things become more normal. Um, Basically, at the low end of 60%, that's 198 million people that need to achieve some form of sustainable immunity. So right now, if you look at it globally, um, there are about 27 million people globally that have recovered. There are about 3.3 million who have been infected and recovered in the United States. Um, and it's going up to, you know, right now, estimates are we're over 8.2 million total cases in the U.S., but you know, even if you set aside for the, the fact right now that not everyone who has recovered has necessarily had a, a sufficient viral load to get sustainable immunity, if we just take away, you know, all 3 million who've already recovered, that still leaves, you know, approximately 195 million to go. And we're going to have to tier uh, that 195 million when we get the initial vaccine what we're hoping for, you know, is there are about six leading vaccines right now. If you look at the, the current most successful in early trial two results that are going into the trial three right now, 
of the, the most promising uh, vaccines, most, not all, but most require two doses. And so, um, unfortunately, right now, if you look at how many people will be required in the first triage to get the first round of doses, we need the first responders, nurses, doctors to get those first. Um, that's about 27 million people um, across the United States that are first responders, doctors, et cetera. And, um, and then after that, we're going to need to then prioritize the elderly and those who are the most vulnerable. Um, what that means is that you know, just to get to the first two tiers, even before you get uh, to the last tier to achieve herd immunity, uh, you're going to need about 220 million doses, assuming two doses per person. Um, and that's before you address the reality that these vaccine companies are going to have to not only meet U.S. demands, but they're trying to meet global demands. So we're going to be in a bit of an ethical issue on who gets the vaccines first, right? And, and we saw that even in our own country when you think back to the peak prior wave, uh, at the same way that individual states fought over, you know, ventilators and drove up the prices of ventilators, um, you're going to see that unfold in the vaccine environment where different countries are right now uh, trying to pre-buy inventory from various pharmaceutical companies. They're all betting on, you know, different ones. They don't know which one's going to ultimately prevail. So these are kind of calculated bets. And I can tell you in my old world of intelligence, um, I haven't seen anything remotely resembling you know, the old Cold War period as much as I'm seeing it right now where I'm, this is a spy versus spy moment where Russia, China, you name it, they're all, everyone is out to get the best vaccine and there is a huge intelligence war uh, to try to steal uh, whatever most promising formulations are coming to fruition. And so um, between the Cold War battle over who gets this vaccine, because that's the key to whichever country can restore their economy first, which is also key to their national security. Um, all that paints a picture for in closing that the 16-month time frame you mentioned, you know, if you just look at that, those first two tiers, and then having to fight over global supply, we're not likely to get to that level of, of 60% low-end herd immunity until at least the summer of 2021. So I think that's an important thing to bear in mind as everyone on this phone call helps their families plan and, and get ready for. Um, it's, it's certainly a situation where uh, you, you have to be prepared to go the distance, um, at least through the summer of, of 2021. So in, with that, Chad, uh, what are, have been some of the bright spots uh, or things that have emerged that you've seen family offices take advantage of or trends for, um, you know, in business for uh, in these areas? We certainly talk about, uh, you know, all of our lives, how they've changed a little bit as part of that. I think it'd be interesting to hear some of your perspective from that. And I would also mention, you know, your better half, Julie Sweet, is the global CEO of Accenture. You know, from her vantage point, um, you know, what are some things that she's also seeing and in, 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 in her contemporary seeing as as trends on the positive side that could come out of this for businesses and family offices? Yeah, I think that's a great. I mean, we often get depressed and it's easy to get depressed right now with what's going on. But I, I do think it's um, when you look at the silver lining and, and there aren't there are some um, uh as you mentioned, and how we're going to get through this, it's not only as we, we work together to hopefully get uh, as quickly as possible a successful vaccine, but it's also the case that um, everyone is learning to adapt to this new reality, the new normal. And um, what Julie would tell you at Accenture is, you know, they've had clients that they've worked with where they had uh, they had a five-year roadmap for digital transformation, and that five-year roadmap now is being compressed in a one-year roadmap. So um, companies that, and those are the lucky ones, those are the ones that had a roadmap in place and now they were able to triage it and, and compress it. Uh, others who didn't even have it are also struggling now, but 
everyone's rushing to get in place uh, a digital strategy to enable them to operate remotely, to enable them to reach their customers in a safe way. Um, and it's something that uh, in the end, when we come out on the other side of this, I think what you're going to see is um, not only in the developing world where digital technology was still lagging, but even in, in the developed world like Europe and the United States, you're going to see uh, the acceleration of digital business models that, again, were on the horizon but are now a reality. And, you know, a quick example would be just in the area of, of telemedicine. We've seen there were a number of uh, regulatory and other roadblocks to having that embraced at scale thanks to the CARES Act and the necessity of the pandemic, those roadblocks were torn down and we're now seeing uh, the customers, you know, patients are embracing it. The elderly, you know, actually appreciate being able to get that advice without putting themselves at risk in a, in a hospital or in an office, a doctor's office. And uh, that's going to forever change the landscape just in the healthcare industry alone on a go-forward basis. So I do think that um, on a number of industries, the, the new technologies and trends are going to be end up being uh, long-term systemic changes that last long after COVID. Um, and there are other things as well if you want to talk about. Uh, yeah. I, I, listen, I think, you know, in, in addition to what you mentioned, you know, people are starting to travel. Um, you know, airlines and hotels are not where they were uh uh, certainly not where they were in January and probably won't be there for a, a couple of years. But uh, do you see any investable opportunities or where where, where have you seen some um, silver lining, as you mentioned before, in, in, the, in the space now and as you, as you characterize it, the, the during COVID and potentially after COVID uh, timeframe? Yeah, I think that's right. For all of us on the phone that are advising families on their on investable opportunities right now, I think that you, you kind of need to do what we do at the chart group in our, uh, it's our MC squared security growth fund. We use a, um, sort of a three-part test that, and we look at it through time. And so, you know, from this point forward and for the rest of our lives, you know, what we like to, to joke about is, you know, in time there used to be BC time. Now it means before Corona, uh, there's DC time meaning during Corona and, and then there's going to be AC time after Corona. And I think every investment opportunity that we look at in our investment committee for the fund, we look at it through the lens of, is, it, is this really uh, an AC opportunity or is this a, a passing flash in the pan DC opportunity? An example I would give is, you know, we're right now seeing five thematics um, that are interesting, but within them, there's some that are just pure DC opportunities and they don't meet the AC test. So in the five thematics that we see right now in our fund, there's biodefense, crisis and emergency response, cybersecurity, a decontamination slash sanitization technology, and then supply chain risk management. Uh, in those, those five areas, for example, if you take the very first one, biodefense, you know, we've seen and we've been approached to invest in uh, contact tracing uh, apps. Now, those are, on the face of it, sounds very interesting, and there's a lot of capability out there, but, um, and this is public, Apple is one of our consulting clients. The two players that are making contact apps, you know, a reality, the two big ones are the world's two largest cell phone manufacturers, uh, I, the iPhone with Apple and then the Android with, with Google. If you step back and look at them, they're, they're working together. And since Apple's our client and we've helped them on a number of privacy and encryption and security issues, if you actually look at the, the contact tracing uh, platform, they're going to open up uh, Google and, and Apple, who are normally fierce competitors, are going to allow for their platforms to integrate for this period. And contact tracing is going to be, you know, very important from a public health point of view, but it's not going to be a very attractive business model. Why? Because of the privacy things I mentioned before, for good reasons, they're going to be deleting the data that's accumulated on a rolling 14-day basis. They're going to ban any kind of digital advertising for good reasons. They're going to 
prevent the competition where they're not going to allow more than one contact tracing app per state in order to help increase the adoption on that app. And so there's a host of reasons why on its face it might look interesting, but in reality when you dig deeper, it does not pass the AC test. On the flip side of it, if you step back and listen to a great TED talk by Bill Gates, which I commend to all of you, if you haven't had a chance to watch it, it's short, it's 15 minutes, but if you type in you know, Bill Gates Ebola TED talk, what you'll see is he gives a talk on pandemics that took place. And when you listen to it, you think you're, you're, he's talking about COVID, uh, but instead he gave this talk five years ago in 2015, right after the Ebola outbreak. And what's tragic is he outlines five different key pillars of what we need to do as a globe to help defend ourselves because his argument, which is a very uh, poignant one, is what's more likely in our lifetimes to kill 10 million people or more? Is it a missile or a microbe? And his answer is a microbe. And, um, and But if you look at where are we spending our money, and I say this as respectfully as somebody who's former CIA, former Homeland Security, we spend billions and billions of dollars on protecting against missiles and other conventional kinetic threats, but we spend a fraction of that on preventing pandemics and being resilient to pandemics. And if you go back and look at, you know, back before COVID, um, what we saw was the, the World Bank in 2015 estimated that if we had a, a, a pandemic, it would reduce global wealth by $3 trillion. Well, look at the facts. It turns out that that was a low, that was a low estimate. I mean, we spent over $3 trillion just in the United States alone on fiscal stimulus. Um, so in the end, you know, we're going to see something like a $7 trillion hit to global GDP you know, as a result of this crisis. And this is not the first pandemic in our lifetimes. I, I mentioned H5N1. I mentioned H1N1. And if you think, um, so Bush had, had one, Obama had one, Trump's got one now. Um, this is going to keep coming. And it's, it's, you know, Albert Camus wrote the book, The Plague. And in the, he has a great quote that says, you know, but in life, there are both wars and plagues. But for some reason, people are surprised by both. And I think that what we're going to have from an investment point of view, just like in 9-11, we ended up as a country stepping back and saying, how do we prevent that from happening again? And how do we make our country more resilient to terrorism? We're going to step back from this after this is all said and done and study what went wrong, what can we do better? And what Gates outlined in that very prescient 2015 TED Talk um, those five pillars of strengthening the current health systems, launching a global medical corps, um, pairing that medical ability with military logistics, running simulation and germ games, and then doing advanced R&D for treatments and AI-driven vaccine development, those are all going to be investable long-term opportunities. Um, and I think, as I mentioned before, Eddie, if you want to talk about any one of those, some of them are are very sexy, as I mentioned, things like immunity identity management, both physical and digital, um, predictive analytics around creating, you know, what would be a pandemic equivalent to the National Hurricane Forecasting Center. But there's also going to be um, less sexy but really exciting investment opportunities in things like decontamination and sanitization technology, which will be critical for, you know, restoring consumer confidence, which is the number one key ingredient to a recovery. Well, thanks, Chad. I, I, I think those are some really interesting points, and they, they kind of dovetail into this next 
piece, uh, that's, and that's the paper findings that we had. We were able to, to work with you on this survey that we did with over 200 family office executives, most of them from North America, but we certainly had about 10% international, uh, on that. And, you know, uh, for folks that haven't read it, we'll, we'll go through a couple of the findings. The, the first one was really around insider threat. And I, I think that's the one that we wanted to talk uh, about. Uh, and it really comes to, you know, the number that came out of that 80% of family offices are not doing regular background checks. You know, from your vantage point, insider threat has certainly been an, an area that the intelligence community has, has looked at. And then I know you've worked with corporations on that. What lessons learned can family offices take away from that area? Yeah, I think, you know, this is one of those things where we all hate to think about it, that there might be someone within our midst that um, could be a threat to us. But the, the there's sort of two elements to that. One is there's passive threat and then there's active threat. And uh, we'll start with passive threat. And you know, there's a funny quote um, among cyber nerds. Cyber nerds um, will tell you that, you know, every packet of data that's moved through the internet, um, there are essentially eight layers to that packet. And they joke about, and it, you, you can look at and inspect these different layers, um, but you can't protect against layer nine. And, and I was asking, what do you mean layer nine? Layer nine is the human layer. And that what they mean by that is right now, when you look at a, a lot of the breaches that occur in family offices are happening because of basically an individual who clicks on an email and a phishing attack and basically through a combination of you know ignorance and or in some cases just being lax uh, they end up infecting their network and exposing the family and so that's the passive insider threat the other is the active insider threat where occasionally you will have a, a, a family office employee who becomes disaffected and uh, actually engages in either a solo embezzlement or other theft, uh, or, or in some cases they get upset and they're disgruntled and just uh, engage in destructive activity after departure. Or you can, uh, there have been you know, documented cases where criminal actors will recruit. A, a, they know, you know, it's not hard to figure out. Most family offices, you know, have a, a, a fixed location, a parking lot. They can identify which cars are there and who goes in and out. And with a reasonable use of social media, they can pretty much triangulate who's working for whom and often will target mid-level or junior uh, individuals for recruitment for this type of activity. And so, and sometimes what happens is, you know, these individuals don't realize they're being preyed on. And they start off, and you know, they may have had a, you know, um, a DUI or some other issue at home. They may have bad credit that's developing because they're in financial distress. And these individuals will ultimately use public records or other means to start to take advantage of that and uh, recruit them. And so, what does all that mean? It means on the passive side and on the active side, the families need to protect themselves with background, not just a background. I, I don't like the word check, you know, Eddie, because the word check. It connotates a one-time, you know, moment where you just, you know, check it once and you're done, check and done. And what we need to know is in the real world, you know, you, you aren't going to be able to know, just like you can't tell the health of a company by just looking at their balance sheet on a particular day, you actually need to look at the cash flow statement and how they're performing over a period of time. The same is true with humans. We need to be able to monitor on a consistent basis. And so, um, you know, the, the most uh, careful families are doing, number one, for passive threat, they're doing and uh, essentially using programs like FishMe or Wombat, where they're using active you know, software programs to go and create uh, phishing against their own people and seeing on who, who actually clicks on it. And if they click on it, it pops up and says, you clicked on this, this was a, a phishing attack, it's a lesson learned. Here are the, the lessons that you need to remember from this. And then it reports that person to their superior so they can then track that and know, okay, uh, 
you know, Chad is, you know, Eddie's doing a great job. He's consistently not taking the bait, but old Chad over there, he keeps clicking. And at some point, you have to sit down with that individual if they keep exposing the family and the enterprise. And uh, that has to be linked to, you know, reprimands, not only in terms of, you know, pay or other types of penalties, but ultimately termination if they're, because they really, it can put the whole family and enterprise at risk. But that's, that's passive. And then the insider, the active side, Eddie, is the last piece, which is, you know, there are, it's very important to do a thorough background check. Many people, some family offices, very, most of them do at least that first family, um, that first check. But what many offices of the survey shows is they don't do follow-up where they're monitoring on a consistent basis using appropriate, you know, public data, which is, you know, it can, it's all within the privacy regulations. And it's something that would, would be, if you're working for a family office, it's not an unreasonable for you as an employer to expect that of the staff. So, uh, Chad, you, you make some good points there, and you know the old adage is that somewhere in some family office, there's you'll you'll find an individual who's willing and able to click on absolutely everything that comes through. So I I can see some of the the areas there. But so thank you for your 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 thoughts there. And the the other finding I I wanted to talk about with you was around third party threats. One of the interesting aspects we found from the survey was that uh, we. A lot of family offices were not evaluating the the part. You know, they might have done a good job with evaluating internal uh, elements, but not evaluating partners and third parties and supply chain elements that are there. What's you know what? Why is that a, a particularly worrisome thing? And how do you see and work with family offices to counter that? You know, I think that um, yeah, it, it's one of those things where thanks for the work that you're doing, Eddie, and Boston Private. I think that. Family offices are often their best allies with each other. And, you know, firms like Boston Private help FOs to network together. So I think having information sharing um, around you guys, you know, saying, hey, which vendors have you used? Um, how do they do? That's really important. But it's also important um, to look at, you know, vendors who have, you know, reputable uh, reputations and that you can you know, check through open source as well as there are num depending on the nature of the of the type of check you know, you are able to ask them for you know any uh, clients ahead that they've used before which specific situations have they addressed have they ever been sued by a client you know if so why what was the issue and those are all important parts of doing appropriate diligence. Uh, on any vendor. So, and it's important that these vendors, a lot of them will sell themselves as doing scrubs or baseline evaluations, but they'll rely on superficial and, and open source data. You really need both in the physical world and in the virtual world you know, vendors who can go uh, much deeper than what's available just through the internet. So, in, in terms of holistically looking at Family offices, because you you've helped build security plans for the for for family offices or evaluate them in the past. You know, if you're a family office executive, uh, either on the single family office side or a multifamily office, what are the like three or four or five things that you would recommend uh, to those folks as they're looking at their their posture on a risk and threat you know spectrum broadly, not just on cyber. Yeah, no, I think it's what I, the same way that I mentioned DHS does a, you know, all hazards approach. I think that every family office needs to think about protecting the family uh, from a all hazards perspective. And so um, some families have done a baseline risk assessment looking at both physical and virtual risks. Um, some have not. And I think that, so the first step is just making sure recommendation number one is, you know, whether you do it yourself or if you use an outside vendor who's got experience in this, and typically you'll want to use the same way you'll want to use an outside auditor to look at um, books of a company that you're investing in, you want to tap the expertise of an outside objective vendor who can help you to, to look at your baseline risk. Um, and after you have that baseline assessment completed, Eddie, it's really important that that you know, that's got to be a. You got to make sure that that it's there's a candid discussion about 
and there's an expectation set with the family that no family office is perfect. So that you know, they shouldn't expect a perfect score. The goal is not realistically perfection, but it is continuous improvement. So you know, once those gaps are identified, and then what's really important is, you know, how do you prioritize the highest risk gaps? And then how are you, you know, on a cost-effective basis, everybody has limited resources. You can't just throw endless money at every problem. So you have to figure out where you're going to get the biggest risk reduction per dollar invested and take a, a risk-based approach. And, and then monitor that, just like you're, we talked about continuous monitoring for staff, the family office itself as an enterprise needs to monitor how are we doing and progressing against filling those gaps. So at least once a year after you've done your baseline assessment, it's important to do an annual checkup and see how, do, how did we do against our goals. What about, you know, some of the issues that come up? with family offices are around proving the negative, right? It's it's easy to to allocate resources to uh, offense, but sometimes really challenging on the defensive side. How have you worked with you know, either executives or principals around uh, you know, making that come to forefront? Yeah, so I think on the offensive side there, you know, what I would say is, and I guess it's a good practical tip, um, you, you know, that's a situation where you want to run a red team against your own office to see, again, when you do that risk line, that baseline assessment I just mentioned, part of it will be, for example, on the cyber side, you'll do penetration testing. You'll have an outside team you know, simulate a bad actor and try to penetrate your systems. That's offense. But what Eddie's talking about on defense is really important, which is so much of what uh, happens in the real world actually can be mitigated through some really fundamental defensive maneuvers. So, so for example, a couple other really uh, important points would be, number one, many family offices don't know all the devices that they have, and they don't know for the family members what devices they have that are contacting the family network. So, you know, starting with the basics of um, defense, you know, in order to, you know, lock your house securely, you need to know where every door and window is. So um, inventorying all your devices, both for the formal staff as well as anyone in the family that's, con you know, interfacing is critical. So computers, laptops, phones, iPads, tablets, that all needs to be inventoried and, and maintain a list of the net all the networks used by the family to touch the family office. Um, the second tip that's really critical is multi-factor authentication. Um, even if a bad person, you know, if, if a, one of the family members loses their cell phone or a staff member, if you have multi-factor authentication, and by that I mean, you know, not only just a PIN or password, but that you've got, you know, most things like if you have an iPhone today, my iPhone has facial recognition. In addition, if I try to use um, on um, all my my daughters, for example, on wet Amazon, I won't let them order without doing multi-factor authentication. So they have to do facial recognition, and the Amazon will send me a, a, a six-digit PIN code on my phone to authenticate that that was a legitimate transaction. So um, a combination of these, you know, passwords, PINs, biometrics, meaning facial fingerprint, and in some cases, you know. Um, actual live, you know, digital sends to reconfirm transactions. Those are all critical and will prevent, you know, 80% of the breaches, even if a, a device is lost. And the last thing I would say is, you know, for most company family offices, um, some family offices, you know, were born when a, a principal had wealth in a, in a company, but they are separate from the company. And so the company may have a lot of IT staff and a lot of security, but most family offices don't have the in-house expertise and capability to continuously monitor all those devices. And so I would say, you know, helping, you know, getting someone to help you select a managed security service provider, an MSSP, who basically monitors 24-7 those both employee-owned devices and the family devices 
so they can they'll have endpoint detection on those devices and they can alert you uh, in the event of a breach or an attack. Um, that type of service is available today you know, for families. We help them select vendors. We help them compete vendors to get really good pricing and capability. But um, these are three things, Eddie, that can go a long way. Again, inventorying those devices, using multi-factor authentication on those devices, and then uh, lastly, setting up endpoint detection and other managed services to monitor those devices. That can substantially reduce the risk of a family office in today's environment. Great. Thanks, Chad. And, and for those that are looking for more uh, answers uh, and, and more tips on the, the, the survey that were released, uh, the last two or three pages have uh, a number of practical tips that we, we worked with uh, and put together. And, and Chad's team was very helpful in, in putting those together as well. Uh, and you can reach out to them uh, uh, for that. So, Chad, I know you have um, a uh, couple of uh, minutes here that we can take for um, uh, for some questions here. So let's do a couple of them uh, rapid fire. Yep. Uh, the the one of them is certainly the uh, the mixed messages that you hear within the administration on on the uh, the vaccine and uh, opportunities where you know governors of states questioning uh, the vaccine and, 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 and how the rollout will go from there. How, do, how have you seen that, you know, you, you've been in the uh, other seat at DHS, how do you see that with our ability to, you know, deal with, uh, you know, this vaccine and COVID? So, sorry, Eddie, can you repeat that last part again? How does it, you know, mixed messages and our ability to deal and, 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 and fix the, the COVID situation? Okay, you know, I think that as we mentioned before, one of the one of the most you know I, I know this conversation can sound you know our jobs in security are to think about the downside, and some of this can be depressing. But um, in terms of the mixed messages, at the end of the day, you know, one of the one of the things about that's great about a family office is it's you know it it doesn't necessarily look to the government to protect the family. There's a certain amount of self reliance, and if you step back and look at um, what can you do? In there will be increased um, opportunities for DHS as well as HHS and the other authorities to make progress on the vaccines, and there will be exciting uh, opportunities to progress it because the, you know we've had pandemics in the history of the world as I mentioned, and they've all come to an end. We've never had the technology that we have today, so there are things like CRISPR. For those of you that have invested in biotech, know how exciting that is in terms of being able to accelerate uh, innovation, and, and that's true in vaccines as well. They can use CRISPR in combination with artificial intelligence to accelerate it even further. You have companies like Moderna that are using cutting-edge new recombinant DNA technology, which we've never had before. So th there's every reason to be optimistic that uh, the, the vaccines will come forward and the therapeutics will as well. I think that uh, in terms of the self-reliance of the family office, though, in the interim, um, one thing I would say that we didn't touch on is think about, um, we didn't, it's in the survey, we talk about it in the survey, but not only the, the cyber threats we discussed in, in the current environment, but the, the actual risk of COVID in the family. So um, managing that risk, making sure that you have, you know, some of it, sometimes we refer to it as a black book or a doomsday book where you as the family office manager have, you know, you've got the medical records appropriate for different family members. You know the overall uh, ability, what their insurance is in terms of helping them get VIP medical care if needed. And then uh, ultimately, unfortunately, if somebody were to pass, including one of the top patriarch or matriarch of the family, you know, having clarity about their will, clarity about their estate planning and how that all flows, um, I know that's a very critical part. It's something that obviously is not a fun topic to discuss, but in terms of being resilient, it's an incredibly important part of the role of the family office advisor in managing risk, especially in the COVID climate that we're in. What about China? And specifically, we we could spend uh, go down different angles here, but the specific angle that came up was around supply chain. Right, we can talk about spy versus spy. We can talk about tariffs, but 
what is this going to do to uh, the supply chain uh, for American manufacturers, regardless, you know, if we, in this current administration or in a, a new potential administration? Um, I think right there what you'll see is, um, and this is really important in terms of going back to investable themes for folks on the phone, uh, we will see that, um, again, going back to whether it's Trump or Biden, in certain areas, more continuity than, than change, you will see that both parties have been tough on China. Both are trying to outdo the other on who's tougher on China. Trump may, may do it in a more unilateral way. Biden may do it in a more multilateral way, but they're both going to do it. And what that means is, you know, right now, uh, COVID did expose to the world the soft underbelly of the post-war just-in-time inventory architecture that we have for uh, supply chain. And that, that has led to two things. Some companies now, if you look at it, are, are moving out of China, not because the government is dictating that they move out in the U.S., but rather they're doing it just because they recognize that they had too much concentration risk in one node, and they need to diversify so that they have not, not only just in time delivery, but they have just in case delivery, that they can actually have some level of redundancy that gives them a cushion, uh, and we don't have things like toilet paper running out or, you know, basic things like you know, sanitizer, et cetera. In addition, though, there are going to be defensive changes in the supply chain mandated by various countries doing nationalist, protectionist-type laws. Um, and so we're already seeing that in our own country. We've seen, you know, the, what's called Senator Cotton, Mike Gallagher bill in the pharma industry where uh, this, in, this episode exposed a high degree of vulnerability with respect to China having, um, you know, some substantial pharmaceuticals where they, they are the predominant producer. And so um, under that bill, which is getting increasing bipartisan support, essentially what it says is that there will be a, a registry where all pharmaceutical ingredients would have to be registered. Any pharmaceutical that has more than 50% of its API active pharmaceutical ingredients with China would have to then wouldn't be bought by the United States government, which is the largest buyer of pharmaceuticals in the world when you combine Medicare, Medicaid, Veterans Affairs, DOD, TRICARE, et cetera. So um, that would that puts a huge you know, stick on changing the supply chain for the pharmaceutical industry, um, and that's going to require you know compliance. So. What we did at the Chertoff Group, for example, is in our security fund, we've helped do reg tech where we help companies comply with different regulatory regimes and we'll invest in companies that allow them through software to track the various requirements of the new reg or law and then be able to be compliant in a cost-effective way. And so an example of that was Coal Fire Systems, which was the number one cloud security certifier in the country, uh, which we just sold to Apex Partners out of Europe. Uh, and that those types of reg tech plays are going to be coming uh, fast and furious with, on the supply chain uh, side. And that's a long-term, if you think about the global supply chain, Eddie, that is a long-term, multi-billion dollar systemic trend that definitely passes the AC test that I mentioned earlier. So that's just, you know, one of the many exciting uh, investment themes, both on offense and defense, that we can play these days. Great. Uh, I would ask you a, a, another question, but I think we'll, we'll run up against time here. Uh, but thank you to everyone for joining us. I really appreciate that. If you've got follow-up questions uh, for Chad, uh, we can we can relay them to uh, him as well. Uh, but you know, in general, Chad, I really appreciate your thoughtful insights today. I mean, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, and for folks on the line or listening to this that like to get in touch with Chad, uh, you know, you can check out his website at www.chertoffgroup.com, or you can send us an email to familyoffice at bostonprivate.com. I also recommend that you check out our website. You can find numerous resources, uh, get a copy of the survey that we've been talking about. You can sign up for a newsletter, get this podcast, and much, much more directly in your inbox. That website is bostonprivate.com forward slash family office. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. And that's it for today. Uh, 
Thanks again, Chad, and, and bye, everybody. Thank you, Eddie. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.